The Fantastic Imagination by George MacDonald This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fantastic Imagination by George MacDonald That we have in English no word corresponding to the German Märchen drives us to use the word fairy tale, regardless of the fact that the tale may have nothing to do with any sort of fairy. The old use of the word fairy, by Spencer at least, might, however, well be adduced, were justification or excuse necessary where need must. Were I asked, what is a fairy tale? I should reply, read Undine. That is a fairy tale. Then read this and that as well, and you will see what is a fairy tale. Were I further begged to describe the fairy tale, or define what it is, I would make answer that I should as soon think of describing the abstract human face, or stating what must go to constitute a human being. A fairy tale is just a fairy tale, as a face is just a face. And of all the fairy tales I know, I think Undine the most beautiful. Many a man, however, who would not attempt to define a man, might venture to say something as to what a man ought to be. Even so much I will not in this place venture with regard to the fairy tale, for my long past work in that kind might but poorly instance or illustrate my now more matured judgment. I will but say some things helpful to the reading in right-minded fashion of such fairy tales as I would wish to write or care to read. Some thinkers would feel sorely hampered if at liberty to use no forms but such as existed in nature, or to invent nothing save in accordance with the laws of the world of the senses. But it must not therefore be imagined that they desire escape from the region of law. Nothing lawless can show the least reason why it should exist, or could at best have more than an appearance of life. The natural world has its laws, and no man must interfere with them in the way of presentment any more than in the way of use. But they themselves may suggest laws of other kinds, and man may, if he pleases, invent a little world of his own, with its own laws. For there is that in him which delights in calling up new forms, which is the nearest, perhaps, he can come to creation." When such forms are new embodiments of old truths, we call them products of the imagination. When they are mere inventions, however lovely, I should call them the work of the fancy. In either case, law has been diligently at work. His world once invented, the highest law that comes next into play is that there shall be harmony between the laws by which the new world has begun to exist. And in the process of his creation, the inventor must hold by those laws. The moment he forgets one of them, he makes the story, by its own postulates, incredible. To be able to live a moment in an imagined world, we must see the laws of its existence obeyed. Those broken, we fall out of it. The imagination in us, whose exercise is essential to the most temporary submission to the imagination of another, immediately, with the disappearance of law, ceases to act. 
Suppose the gracious creatures of some childlike region of fairyland talking either Cockney or Gascon. Would not the tale, however lovelily begun, sink at once to the level of the burlesque, of all forms of literature the least worthy? A man's inventions may be stupid or clever, but if he does not hold by the laws of them, or if he makes one law jar with another, he contradicts himself as an inventor. He is no artist. He does not rightly consort his instruments, or he tunes them in different keys. The mind of man is the product of live law. It thinks by law. It dwells in the midst of law. It gathers from law its growth. With law, therefore, can it alone work to any result. Inharmonious, unconsorting ideas will come to a man, but if he try to use one of such, his work will grow dull, and he will drop it from mere lack of interest. Law is the soil in which alone beauty will grow. Beauty is the only stuff in which truth can be clothed. And you may, if you will, call imagination the tailor that cuts her garments to fit her, and fancy his journeyman that puts the pieces of them together, or perhaps at most embroiders their buttonholes. Obeying law, the maker works like his creator. Not obeying law, he is such a fool as heaps a pile of stones and calls it a church. In the moral world it is different. There a man may clothe in new forms, and for this employ his imagination freely, but he must invent nothing. He may not, for any purpose, turn its laws upside down. He must not meddle with the relations of live souls. The laws of the spirit of man must hold, alike in this world and in any world he may invent. It were no offense to suppose a world in which everything repelled instead of attracted the things around it. It would be wicked to write a tale representing a man it called good as always doing bad things, or a man it called bad as always doing good things. The notion itself is absolutely lawless. In physical things, a man may invent. In moral things, he must obey, and take their laws with him into his invented world as well. You write as if a fairy tale were a thing of importance. Must it have meaning? It cannot help having some meaning. If it have proportion and harmony, it has vitality, and vitality is truth. The beauty may be plainer in it than the truth, but without the truth the beauty could not be, and the fairy tale would give no delight. Everyone, however, who feels the story will read its meaning after his own nature and development. One man will read one meaning in it, another will read another. If so, how am I to assure myself that I am not reading my own meaning into it, but yours out of it? Why should you be so assured? It may be better that you should read your meaning into it. That may be a higher operation of your intellect than the mere reading of mine out of it. Your meaning may be superior to mine. Suppose my child ask me what the fairy tale means. What am I to say? If you do not know what it means, what is easier than to say so? If you do see a meaning in it, 
there it is for you to give him. A genuine work of art must mean many things. The truer its art, the more things it will mean. If my drawing, on the other hand, is so far from being a work of art that it needs this is a horse written under it, what can it matter that neither you nor your child should know what it means? It is there not so much to convey a meaning as to wake a meaning. If it do not even wake an interest, throw it aside. A meaning may be there, but it is not for you. If, again, you do not know a horse when you see it, the name written under it will not serve you much. At all events, the business of the painter is not to teach zoology. But indeed, your children are not likely to trouble you about the meaning. They find what they are capable of finding, and more would be too much. For my part, I do not write for children, but for the childlike, whether of five or fifty or seventy-five. A fairy tale is not an allegory. There may be allegory in it, but it is not an allegory. He must be an artist indeed who can, in any mode, produce a strict allegory that is not a weariness to the spirit. An allegory must be mastery or moorditch. A fairy tale, like a butterfly or a bee, helps itself on all sides, sips every wholesome flower, and spoils not one. The true fairy tale is, to my mind, very like the sonata. We all know that a sonata means something, and where there is the faculty of talking with suitable vagueness and choosing metaphor sufficiently loose, mind may approach mind in the interpretation of a sonata, with the result of a more or less contenting consciousness of sympathy. But if two or three men sat down to write each what the sonata meant to him, what approximation to definite idea would be the result? Little enough, and that little more than needful. We should find it had roused related, if not identical, feelings, but probably not one common thought. Has the sonata therefore failed? Had it undertaken to convey, or ought it to be expected to impart, anything defined, anything notionally recognizable? But words are not music. Words, at least, are meant and fitted to carry a precise meaning. It is very seldom, indeed, that they carry the exact meaning of any user of them. And if they can be so used as to convey definite meaning, it does not follow that they ought never to carry anything else. Words are live things that may be variously employed to various ends. They can convey a scientific fact, or throw a shadow of her child's dream on the heart of a mother. They are things to put together, like the pieces of a dissected map, or to arrange like the notes on a stave. Is the music in them to go for nothing? It can hardly help the definiteness of a meaning. Is it therefore to be disregarded? They have length and breadth and outline. Have they nothing to do with depth? Have they only to describe, never to impress? Has nothing any claim to their use but the definite? The cause of a child's tears may be altogether undefinable. Has the mother therefore no antidote for his vague misery? 
that may be strong in color, which has no evident outline. A fairy tale, a sonata, a gathering storm, a limitless night, seizes you and sweeps you away. Do you begin at once to wrestle with it and ask whence its power over you, whither it is carrying you? The law of each is in the mind of its composer. That law makes one man feel this way, another man feel that way. To one, the sonata is a world of odor and beauty. To another, of soothing only and sweetness. To one, the cloudy rendezvous is a wild dance with a terror at its heart. To another, a majestic march of heavenly hosts with truth in their center pointing their course, but as yet restraining her voice. The greatest forces lie in the region of the uncomprehended. I will go farther. The best thing you can do for your fellow, next to rousing his conscience, is not to give him things to think about, but to wake things up that are in him, or, say, to make him think things for himself. The best nature does for us is to work in us such moods in which thoughts of high import arise. Does any aspect of nature wake but one thought? Does she ever suggest only one definite thing? Does she make any two men in the same place at the same moment think the same thing? Is she therefore a failure, because she is not definite? Is it nothing that she rouses the something deeper than the understanding, the power that underlies thoughts? Does she not set feeling, and so thinking, at work? Would it be better that she did this after one fashion, and not after many fashions? Nature is mood-engendering, thought-provoking. Such ought the sonata, such ought the fairy tale, to be. But a man may then imagine in your work what he pleases, what you never meant. Not what he pleases, but what he can. If he be not a true man, he will draw evil out of the best. We need not mind how he treats any work of art. If he be a true man, he will imagine true things. What matter whether I meant them or not? They are there, nonetheless that I cannot claim putting them there. One difference between God's work and man's is that while God's work cannot mean more than he meant, man's must mean more than he meant. For in everything that God has made, there is a layer upon layer of ascending significance. Also, he expresses the same thought in higher and higher kinds of that thought. It is God's things, his embodied thoughts, which alone a man has to use, modified and adapted to his own purposes, for the expression of his thoughts. Therefore, he cannot help his words and figures falling into such combinations in the mind of another as he had himself not foreseen. So many are the thoughts allied to every other thought. So many are the relations involved in every figure. So many the facts hinted in every symbol. A man may well himself discover truth in what he wrote, for he was dealing all the time with things that came from thoughts beyond his own. But surely you would explain your idea to one who asked you. I say again, if I cannot draw a horse 
I will not write, This is a horse, under what I foolishly meant for one. Any key to a work of imagination would be nearly, if not quite, as absurd. The tale is there not to hide, but to show. If it show nothing at your window, do not open your door to it. Leave it out in the cold. To ask me to explain is to say, Roses, boil them, or we won't have them. My tales may not be roses, but I will not boil them. So long as I think my dog can bark, I will not sit up to bark for him. If a writer's aim be logical conviction, he must spare no logical pains, not merely to be understood, but to escape being misunderstood. Where his object is to move by suggestion, to cause to imagine, then let him assail the soul of his reader as the wind assails an aeolian harp. If there be music in my reader, I would gladly wake it. Let fairy tale of mine go for a firefly that now flashes, now is dark, but may flash again. Caught in a hand which does not love its kind, it will turn to an insignificant ugly thing that can neither flash nor fly. The best way with music, I imagine, is not to bring the forces of our intellect to bear upon it, but to be still and let it work on that part of us for whose sake it exists. We spoil countless precious things by intellectual greed. He who will be a man and will not be a child must, he cannot help himself, become a little man, that is, a dwarf. He will, however, need no consolation, for he is sure to think himself a very large creature indeed. If any strain of my broken music make a child's eyes flash, or his mother's grow for a moment dim, my labor will not have been in vain. End of The Fantastic Imagination by George MacDonald